Hello, podcast listeners. This is Professor Todd. Today, I have for you a special spring break edition of the Story of Psychology podcast. I want to tell you about a fascinating museum that is all about the history of psychology. Now, the reason this is a spring break edition of the Story of Psychology podcast is because I visited this museum on spring break. I love spring break. Every year, I have a great time when I go on spring break. I could tell you stories about lying on sunny beaches, drink in my hand, toes in the sand, acting useless, and developing melanoma. Of course, none of those stories would be true, because I lead a pretty quiet life, and I sunburn easily. So when I get the chance to get away for a few days to do something fun, my wife and I usually do something historical. For instance, my wife and I have a goal of visiting all of the presidential libraries in the United States. We recently visited Lamar, Missouri, where we saw the birthplace of President Harry S. Truman. Harry Truman is the only president from my home state of Missouri. On spring break, we visited the farm where Harry Truman spent his early adulthood and then we traveled to Independence, Missouri, where we saw Harry Truman's home, and we visited his presidential museum and library. Now, as much as I would love to tell you everything that I learned about Harry Truman on that trip, that's going to have to wait for another type of podcast. What I want to tell you about today concerns the history of psychology. Independence, Missouri, where you'll find Truman's Presidential Library and Museum, is right next door to Kansas City, Missouri. And if you travel north from Kansas City, Missouri, you will arrive at St. Joseph, Missouri. And there is a lot of history to explore in St. Joseph, Missouri, including the house where the outlaw Jesse James was killed, the very first Pony Express office, and another wonderful history museum built within a hotel containing a functioning full-sized carousel and a train and a history of telephones. It, it's, it's, it's amazing. But St. Joseph, Missouri is also the home of the Glore Psychiatric Museum. That's Glore, G-L-O-R-E. And the Glore Psychiatric Museum is a must-see for students of the history of psychology. Of course, I know that just talking about a museum leaves a little something to be desired, so I'm also including with this podcast something that I'm attempting for the very first time, a video podcast. In addition to the podcast that you're listening right now, I've created a video podcast that I'll be posting, and it features a few of the highlights of the museum trip so that you can see what you're missing. This also marks another first for the History of Psychology podcast, and that is I'm doing an interview. So if you go to the Glore Psychiatric Museum in St. Joseph, Missouri, you simply must say hello to Amber. Here, let me introduce you. My name is Amber Nold, and I'm actually an intern here. I came a couple 
Augusts ago and then just stuck around for a long time. I loved um, the psychiatric history and I stayed and they liked me and I liked them and I just dove right into the, the archives and so here I am still. <laughs> the name of Amber's workplace is the Glore Psychiatric Museum. That's Glore, G-L-O-R-E. And it contains a collection of artifacts about the history of the treatment of mental illness in the United States and Europe. Amber is a student and an amateur historian who answered my questions about the facility. Now, this facility has not always been a museum. What was this institution called originally? When it first opens, it was called the State Lunatic Asylum Number no. 2, um, lunatic being the, the actual official name for mentally ill. At the time, it was the same saying as now saying mentally ill. And then asylum, it was um, just basically a place to get away, a retreat, to kind of rest and recuperate. And then as it kind of changed as connotations became heaped on those names, we changed it to the State Hospital Number no. 2, and then it became the St. Joseph State Hospital. Um, in 1997, it moved across the street and is now the Northwest Missouri Psychiatric Rehabilitation Center. So how did this become the Glore Psychiatric Museum? This was called the Panettiere Building. It was the medical surgical building. The old half that kind of splits off in a weird kind of forked shape was built in 1923. And then this addition that we're in now that the Psychiatric Museum is in was built in 1968. Um, it was uh, medical surgical, so a couple of the rooms upstairs were operating rooms. There was a pharmacy back where our conference room is now. Uh, you know, all the windows, counters, everything for pharmaceutical stuff that we now use for conferences. Um, and then it eventually became a receiving unit for the whole hospital, so patients would come and stay here and be diagnosed when they were first admitted before it was determined where they would go um, for the rest of the hospital, and then they would be sent out to other wards. How was this building chosen for the museum? Well, I'm not exactly sure how they picked this building. It was originally a very small endeavor. Um, George Glore worked with some of the patients and the, uh, and the engineers to build a few replicas of treatment devices that they put on display for Mental Health Awareness Week. Uh, and then it just kind of grew from there, and then it was in a hallway and a room, and then it kind of just grew and grew and grew and grew. It was in the, the center building where it was a lot more open at the time. Now it's a completely forensic institution, but it didn't used to be. You used to could go tour the, the hospital and the museum if you wanted to, which now there's no way you could get, even get in there. Um, but eventually it moved to this building, uh, I think probably after it became the receiving unit when, when the surgery was done in other buildings. It, it just grew and grew. Um, and then as um, we went through the deinstitutionalism phase, hospitals began to be shut down or turned into prisons. And so they would send us a lot of our stuff. Like when St. Louis shut down, we got loads of of the, you know, the copper spire, the lion that was on the front of the building, some of their medicine cabinets, all that. And so we just grew and grew and grew and needed more and more and more space. And so I think it, now it takes up all four floors of this one building. <laughs> now the facility that we are visiting today is still a functioning psychiatric facility, but we are in the part that is no longer used to house patients. The currently functioning psychiatric facility is located right across the street. But the types of patients and the size of this institution has really changed from its height. Yes, at one point we had um, some just under 3,000 patients, and it is now, they have 108 beds now, so they've drastically downsized and uh, upgraded in their technology. But yes, it's almost entirely forensic as well. And the treatment of the mentally ill has changed dramatically over the years. For instance, today it would be impossible to just walk into a psychiatric facility and ask to see a patient in his or her room. And that was 
if they even had rooms instead of cages or being put on display. But that was not always the case. I know in London, um, the major hospitals, you could pay, I think it was two pounds or two pence to get in and then an extra two pence to be able to throw vegetables at the people who were there, which is just a horrible thing. That was in you know one of my introductory history textbooks. I thought that was just terrible. And I'm not sure, you know, we apparently have always had this idea that they're just not quite human. There's something about them that they're just kind of treated like animals. And so over, over the course of the years, we still continue to treat them as animals. It was a little bit better and a little bit better, and little reforms here and there um, as we started seeing, um, especially I think when the families got more involved is when we really started seeing things. People didn't, you know, didn't want to or weren't able to take care of family members, so they just dropped them off, and, you know, and, and anything could happen. And then when you get into um, probably the 1900s especially, you get family members coming, visiting all the time, wanting, you know, actively being involved in treatment and sort of demanding, you know, I, my husband is a person, you know, my son is a person, and you will treat him like a person. So I think that had a lot to do with it as well. You know, I read a really sad thing on a display near the morgue in the basement of the building. And the sign said that many times when people were admitted to the psychiatric asylum, their family was told to bring with them the clothes that they wanted their relative to be buried in because it was very likely that this patient would not be leaving the asylum alive. So when a person came to the asylum, what were the chances that that person would get better and be able to leave? It varies, it, and it's, those were really in the very earliest days, and even that I think to some degree is a little bit over-exaggerated, having gone through all the books of admissions and discharges, but it, it kind of depends on what was wrong with you and what what they knew at the time. At the time, we had a lot of people who were admitted for things that you would never in a million years put someone, you know, morality issues, women that talked back, I mean, stuff like that. So how do you recover from talking back to your husband? Nothing, because there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that we think there's something wrong with you, and then we think, okay, you're reformed now. Um, epileptics, alcoholics, you know, if you were senile, anything like that, we didn't have specialized care. They were all here. Um, at one point, at the very beginning, even in medieval periods, it was just madness, and that's all we knew. We knew there was something wrong, and then it grew into, I believe, mania and melancholia, and then it just grew and grew and grew and grew, and, grew, and now we have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual with hundreds and hundreds of, of all these different disorders and, and illnesses that people suffer from. So I think identification of what's wrong is one of the major things, but then actually most people don't realize that the huge scourge of asylums in the United States was syphilis. Uh, for a long time, so the treatment of syphilis is what actually did it. Um, if you gave them malaria, it was it was decided that, that it would could kill really early forms of syphilis. Um, but then you had malaria <laughs> to deal with. <laughs> but then once the, we figured out it was the fever, we could make fever cabinets to raise their fever intentionally. Because syphilis, when it goes unchecked for many years, it becomes general paresis. So it develops um, sort of tumor-like you know, growths that press on your brain and then cause sort of those symptoms of madness. So something like that. And then it grew into alcoholism being the biggest factor. Well, alcoholism has always been something that's really, really recurring. So it's tough. They, they're you know, let go, and then they just end up right back there a year later. And so developing treatments, trying to figure out, identify the problem, what's wrong, and then try to figure out how to treat that. So it's really tough to say <laughs> the rates of how we could, you know, cure them or not cure them. A lot of times 
their letters saying, oh, this person's not curable, this person's curable, and it's not really, it doesn't really seem to be based on very much. What is the most common reason why someone would be confined to a mental institution today? Well, in, as far as facilities go, because of the deinstitutionalism, it's almost all forensic. Um, as far as that people are in either wings or of, of regular hospitals, or they're just going to counseling out on their own. They're in group homes, family care, stuff like that. Um, but it's almost entirely for institutions. What's left of them is, is there's a few different, um, I can't think of them now off the top of my head, but um, it's not just guilty by reason of insanity. I think there's three or four different mental health related uh, ways that the court can commit you there, but it's, it's always based on that for big institutions. As you tour the halls of the Glore Psychiatric Museum, you notice a large number of rocking chairs. And there are several pictures with rows and rows of rocking chairs on wide porches. Tell me more about that. Um, there's this old adage of the rocking chair hospital. Um, before we had formal occupational therapy um, programs, we, the patients still did things. We farmed everything. They built a lot of these buildings. They made the bricks to put the buildings together. Well, patients who couldn't do that would do simple things like sweep, and we had a lot of just infirm and, and physically disabled patients who couldn't do anything, so they would just sit um, and rock. There's a picture up there over one of the rocking chairs. It just shows a room full of rocking chairs of people rocking. And it's kind of funny, my mother, well, not funny, funny, like ha-ha, but sad funny. My mother did her nurse's training here back, I believe, in the 60s. And she said by the end of it, all the nurses in the training were just sitting out on the front porch rocking, and they just felt like they'd completely lost it and all just sitting out there rocking with the patients because they, you know, they had rows of rocking chairs and keep them doing something. It kept, got their brains sort of set into this motion and it would keep them calm and, and out of trouble. Um, a lot of the things that you see in the museum aren't so much treatments for what's wrong. They're trying to, you know, like all the hydrotherapy, that's just keeping them calm so that they were, you know, the nurses and aides could handle them. I noticed a display about the use of lobotomies in the treatment of the mentally ill. Now, lobotomy was a procedure in which a sharpened instrument, like an ice pick, was inserted under the eyelid and tapped through the bone of the eye socket, and then it was swished around to sever connections in the frontal lobes of the brain. Now, of course, today, that seems barbaric, but it was once the cutting edge, if you'll excuse that phrase, of treatment. Why did that seem like such a good idea to people at the time? Well, it was a whole, we've gone through all sorts of strange stages in trying to figure out, you know, what's actually wrong. And one of them was that there's physically something wrong with the brain. And we, I mean, what I tell groups is, of students that come in is we're almost no closer now when we think about it to really figuring out why these things are caused than we were then so let's not jump ahead of ourselves but that was just one of the phases is that you could there's something physically wrong so that you could do something physical to um, correct that problem and the very earliest um, were not even called lobotomies or leukectomies or something like that that um, Dr. Moniz did where he it was an actual operation that went through the side of the skull and took out a small piece of the brain. It was done as an absolute last ditch effort to save a person and he actually had fairly good results. But when uh, Dr. Freeman came in 
he realized that in the United States, only a tiny percentage, and we're in by far the minority of institu psychiatric institutions that have surgery facilities. So he tried, basically was trying to make this into an outpatient procedure, which is exactly what he did with the eye's pick lobotomy. He goes in with um, a pick up through the eye and then basically scrambles it through hitting it certain degrees. Um, and we went through that stage for a while with a couple different forms of psychosurgery, which really, we kind of do that in a way now with laser surgery, but you don't have to make any incisions, anything like that, and pinpoint accuracy. With um, lobotomies, some people don't even realize that it wasn't always doctors. I mean, nurses and even techs were trained to do lobotomies as well. And because of that, and because the human brain is different from person to person, you have completely different um, outcomes, and you, people were doing it completely different. This person may knock it 10, 20 degrees more to the left or something like that. So you end up with some people who have no change, some people who are a little bit better, and some people who are complete vegetables. And so then we had some crusading of, so let's get away from this, you know, this isn't really working as a whole. Um, so economical though, I think it was like $150 to do a lobotomy where we're talking about 35000 per year per patient to keep them in an institution. So that's part of you know, money drives everything. That's part of where that came from. You make a really good point about the relative lack of understanding that we have about the human brain. So despite all of the advances of science, imagine that you could travel ahead 100 years. What do you think people would say about treatment techniques that are in use today? Well, I think even at the time, people thought, especially in the last 100 years, and the reason that the deinstitutionalism movement came about in the 1960s that we really weren't treating them, we were just warehousing them. And I think the major thing that we're going through right now is just drugging them up, um, keeping them manageable. When Thorazine came about, um, they would just walk around at our institution with a one-gallon, um, basically punch bowl, handing out Thorazine to patients on the wards. And it would get to where they couldn't really sleep. They were almost zombies. And so they would do this thing called the Thorazine Shuffle, where they'd just be shuffling against the wall up and down because they were just not even there. They were just so completely drugged. And so I think, um, I think that, especially with psychiatric care, is something that we're going to look back on and say, you weren't even helping these people. You were just keeping them quiet. You know, we need to actually be, you know, but what we can only do so much with the information that we have. We don't know what is wrong with these people. We don't know where schizophrenia comes from. So how can we treat it? We can only can just try to make it manageable. We can try to treat the symptoms and make this person's life as good as we possibly can um, and try to do continue to do research to try to figure out where it comes from so we can actually cure it instead of just treating the symptoms. You know, it's easy to look back on the treatment of the mentally ill and think that the people who ran the asylums in France, in London, in America, were brutal or sadistic or at the very least uncaring. But that's not really a fair judgment, is it? In fact, many of the treatment techniques that were attempted in the past were really attempts to help the mentally ill, not hurt them. Is that right? Um, I think one of the things that's really important in understanding the treatments is the understanding why we came up with these ideas. We weren't just torturing these people to be torturing them. We were genuinely trying to help. And I think it can ground us in our thinking of, all right, what are we doing now and why are we doing it? And is it really helping? 
you know, we, we like to think, what are we going to look back on in 100 years and think is absolutely horrendous? And it's generally agreed upon across the board that it's chemotherapy is probably the thing that we're going to look back and say, oh my gosh, what on earth were we thinking? But um, this is just an opportunity to get to actually see, you know, the things from these nightmare stories that we've all heard about. Um, and so that's, it's, it's important for us to be aware of the things that were going on. As far as mental illness, it's something that's invisible. It's in your head. Um, it's not just out there. And so not everyone can see it. We're not always thinking about it. And so this is a good reminder of let's continue to, you know, think about how we understand mental illness and how we are caring for people in our society who have mental illnesses. There's a, a doctor that we had at our um, hospital back in the 70s and he, I'm going to misquote him so I'm not even going to try. It was something like you can judge the measure of a civilization based on how they treat their mentally ill. And I think what does it th say about the United States that we pretty much dump ours out on the street? So I think that's a good thing to think about. If people want to visit the Glore Psychiatric Museum, where can they find you? Um, the Psychiatric Museum is at 3406 Frederick Avenue in St. Joseph, Missouri. It's just off of I-29. If you're coming south, you'll turn right um, onto Frederick, uh, which is exit 47. And then obviously if you're coming north, you turn left. And then it's just a few blocks down from there. And it's in, it looks like an old big <laughs> institution building is right past 36th Street on your left. How far away are you from Kansas City? We are, it depends on where you're coming from in Kansas City, but we usually just peg it about an hour. And you can find more information at glore.com. That's G-L-O-R-E.com. And if you visit the Glore Psychiatric Museum, say hello to Amber. And if you wouldn't mind, could you mention to whomever sells you a ticket that you heard about the museum on the Story of Psychology podcast? Thanks. I'd like to conclude this podcast with some words that I found on a sign at the end of the tour of the Glore Psychiatric Museum. These words describe the purpose of the museum and remind us again of the history of the treatment of the mentally ill. In summary, although the wails and shrieks of patients the clankings of chains and shackles and the slamming of the isolation chamber doors has long ended. The age-old stigma associated with mental illness and the lack of knowledge and understanding still prevails in segments of our society today. The burning of witches and the casting out of evil spirits, the purging, blistering, bleeding, and vomiting, all early methods employed in attempting to bring back a cure, certainly demonstrate in retrospect the lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding and a lack of compassion that existed prior to contemporary psychiatric practices. The deinstitutionalization movement and the downsizing of the huge monolithic mental institutions has occurred with an initiation of active treatment programs coupled with new and promising medications and with the establishment of community-based mental health services. An end to the barren and dehumanizing warehouses for the mentally ill, which existed throughout this country, has been slow in coming but the end is in sight. It is true that misconceptions and misunderstandings concerning mental illness and mental health issues are being addressed and views are changing, but an even greater awareness is needed and must occur.
Well, that is going to wrap up this special spring break edition of the podcast. Be sure to check out the accompanying video podcast for some pictures of the Glore Psychiatric Museum. This is Professor Todd. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on the Story of Psychology podcast. <laughs>